HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. Welcome to the food scene. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Drew Laser. And Drew just wrote this book called Session Cocktails, but we're going to talk about his drinking life because <laughs> uh, th- this man is from Maryland and I, I have unrelatedly traveled to Italy with him and we shared many, well, not shared, had our own Negronis throughout. But I've been reading a lot of articles that you've written in the past about drinks and one really stuck out to me. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, many stuck out to me. And it's about this drink from Baltimore. The um, Orange Crush? Yes. Yes. Can, you, can we just start off this session with you explaining why? Why would anyone ever make or drink this? Absolutely. Uh, the Orange Crush originates in Ocean City, Maryland. It's basically uh, <laughs> it's fresh-squeezed OJ or another citrus. There's a grapefruit crush as well. Uh, vodka. Some uh, orange liqueur, and it's basically topped with soda, and it's served in a pint glass. And it's the most popular cocktail in the state of Maryland. It's not even close. But you didn't say yay or nay about it. What are your sentiments? I I'm more partial. I'm more of a grapefruit crush guy. <laughs> so you like the crush in general, but you tend towards the grapefruit. I like the crush, yes, <laughs> especially in this day and age with cocktail culture. There's it goes in so many different directions, and it can it can be very erudite a lot of times. And I feel like the Orange Crush is one cocktail that really represents kind of the attitude and kind of the uh, the spirit of Baltimore in general because it's not fancy. Uh, it's from Maryland, and people from Maryland are obsessed with things from Maryland. And I I think that's a big reason why I like it so much. Uh, I'm definitely biased, but I just I like the story behind it, and I like how it's really kind of spread out from the city of Baltimore throughout the eastern seaboard. But for the past 15 years, you've called Philadelphia your home, and I feel like there's a similar thing that happens in that city that happens maybe in Baltimore, that there's inherent pride in certain drinks or certain local culture. Have you found that in Philadelphia as well? Absolutely. I mean, it's a huge beer-drinking town. Uh, In addition to all the brew pubs and breweries that are actually in and around the city, uh, it's, it's kind of the birthplace of 
Belgian beer in America with Monk's Cafe, which I know that you have been to and love. They were probably the first bar of its kind in America to bring these really rare and at that time really little known Belgian beers over. So that's something that Philadelphians are extremely proud of. Uh, and then you also have something like the uh, this, what's known as the Citywide Special, which uh, was originated at a bar called Bob and Barbara's on South Street. It's just a uh, PBR and a shot of Jim Beam. Uh, it's supposed to be $3 in 2018 with, with inflation. I'm not sure if it's still exactly $3 everywhere, but uh, that's kind of the, the blue-collar uh, mentality. Not froofy, not fancy. Three bucks and you get two drinks. Uh, that, yeah, that, that is kind of Philly drinking in a nutshell, but it's, it's much more than just that, but I'd say that's a great place to start. Well, did you know you were going to be doing any of this, this cocktail history? Because when you first moved to Philly, you were writing for City Paper. It certainly covered you know, the food scene. Um, when did it transfer from food into libations? I think it was, just an, it was just a natural progression in that I was spending a ton of time in bars and restaurants and often found myself getting into these really interesting conversations with cocktail bartenders. They're just some of the most interesting and passionate people in the kind of food sphere. And I just, I just really love chatting with them and I love learning from them. And that's, it was just a natural progression in that I just started finding really interesting stories from those people. Uh, from those pros, and uh, it it just really kind of opened up my eyes to a bunch of stuff that I didn't really know anything about because, like, you know, as we talked about before, coming from Baltimore, I'm definitely a shot and beer guy. Uh, I'm not a, I'm not a, uh, a person who know, has grown up, you know, knowing tons about wine and tons about kind of uh, his cocktail history and things like that. So it was, it was really just an eagerness to, to learn from them that sparked all these stories and everything. What did you grow up eating and drinking then? Uh, for me, it was kind of an interesting upbringing in that my mom's from the Philippines and my dad has kind of a mixed um, Irish and Slovak background. So anything from a Eastern European thing like a chicken paprikash to adobo, lumpia, pancit, which are all the kind of staples of Filipino food. Uh, every night during the week, uh, when we sat down to eat dinner together or even cook t- dinner together as a family, it would be some crazy disparate dish from a, uh, a differing tradition. And I, I didn't really realize it at the time, but looking back at it now that I'm a little older, I feel super lucky to have grown up in that type of environment where things are just kind of being thrown at me. And it was up to me to kind of navigate that whole thing and learn about where these dishes came from, how to make them. And it was a really cool way to, to grow up. Yeah, and you have such breadth and latitude in in different culture because you've written books about new German cooking and how to drink French, uh, like St. Germain cocktails. So is there anything that you won't write about in the drink or food sphere? I I would say no. As long as I personally find it interesting and I'm a curious person, most things I'm curious about uh, because I don't consider myself an expert about any any of this stuff whatsoever. I, uh, yeah, because people often ask me, since I write about food and drink, oh, you must be a food and drink expert, or you know about this and that. I'm definitely the opposite of that. I'm really just a reporter. I just ask questions that I am interested in and uh, learn, and then kind of try to convey what I've learned in articles, because I'm pretty sure that there's a lot of people out there that are curious about the same topics I am, and that's what uh, really kind of drives me. Do you think people were interested about Bolio, the, the, the cold country Christmas time kind oh, of cocktail. Boilo, Boilo, yes, yes, yes. That's from uh, that's from Central Pennsylvania. Um, basically, came down. Uh, or came. I'm sorry. It came over 
to uh, the States from uh, Lithuanian immigrants who basically made something called Krupnikas, which is a honey and lemon kind of super potent wintertime hot drink, uh, somewhat comparable to like a hot toddy. And um, I had just heard about it from friends who were from central Pennsylvania uh, in the coal mining country out there, anthracite coal mining country, and went out there, learned firsthand um, from, a, from an ex-police officer named Fritz how to make it. And I was really, really surprised and really pleased at the reaction to that article because not only was it kind of central PA expats who live elsewhere in the States now and like really read the article as a, a nice reminder of what it's like growing up for them at home, um, a lot of people just had never really heard about it because it doesn't really extend beyond its environs right there in the middle of the Commonwealth. And that was really exciting for me because it showed that this, again, it's not, this isn't anything very highbrow. It's not, it's stuff, it's something that people make at home with their families every year. It's a tradition. But I think people who might not be familiar with those types of things want to learn about them. And that's what really pleased me about that particular article was the, the level of interest that people who had no clue what the stuff was beforehand showed after they read it, which I was really, really fired up about. Yeah. Well, I mean, also as a common denominator that it is fruit, spice, and whiskey. So there, there are a lot of iterations of that, you know, throughout the world. Absolutely. But there aren't many silver stallions. And <laughs> talk to me about bringing back the silver stallion, this D-list thing that you write. Okay, I just started this column. Uh, it's called the D-list, and that's at punch, punchdrink.com. Uh, and the idea is there's tons and tons of famous cocktails that have been around for years and years that we all know by name, the old fashions and the Manhattans of the world. Those are the A-list. And then if you kind of go through <laughs> down the alphabet just a little bit, there's some other cocktails, maybe like think something like the Gibson or the Brooklyn that, you know, the average person who isn't super into the drinking culture might not know about, but bartenders and cocktail geeks and those types of people know. And then if you keep going down all the way, there's the D list, which is if you crack open any kind of cocktail manual that came out in the past 100 years or so, there's the A-list, the B-list, the C-list, but then there's just as many drinks where I'm like, I've never heard of this drink. I've never seen it on a menu. Um, I've never heard anyone talk about it. But there are really passionate bartenders out there who kind of uh, focus in on these certain quote-unquote D-list drinks and either modernize them or kind of do the original versions on their menus and at their bars to introduce them to a new audience. So that's what the D-list is all about. The Silver Stallion. Um, I, I like yes. uh, the anticipation of what's actually in this Silver Stallion. People are either going to be exhilarated or completely deflated. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think it, 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 it perhaps is a stratifying cocktail. So the original recipe popped up in a book called Here's How. The, I think it was around 1928. The, the original recipe was half gin, or actually it was a Prohibition-era book, so they called it, quote, Gordon Water, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> it's like the most... Least, or I, I should say, the least subtle way to hide the fact that you mean gin. Uh, half Gordon water or gin, and half vanilla ice cream, and then it calls to top it with um, a store-bought mixer that was basically akin to something like Sprite, like a lemon-lime uh, effervescent soda. That later uh, kind of transmogrified into the Savoy cocktail book, which came out two years later. And um, a little bit different recipe that time, but still the, the primary building blocks were gin and vanilla ice cream. Uh, fast forward to 2018, and a bartender in Houston uh, at the, the bar Tongue Cut Sparrow has been, had, 
discovered this cocktail in the Savoy book and said, hey, this sounds like something that would be great for the after-dinner crowd because it's dessert-ish, dessert-adjacent, I guess. And he did a modernized version of it. Uh, but it's still gin and ice cream in a glass, which, <laughs> yes, I, I, I think it's very astute of you to point out that some people are going to be real excited about this and some people are going to run away. <laughs> well, it certainly is an accession cocktail, and we're going to take a quick break and come right back. Think about what it takes to swim a coastline longer than the entire eastern seaboard and leap tall waterfalls in a single bound. What does it take to survive 200 feet deep in icy saltwater? What would you be made of? Wild Alaska seafood is made of tight muscle mass, long chain omega-3s, and incredible micronutrients. It matters where your food comes from. Experience the flavor of the fittest in every bite and enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. Ask for Alaska on the menu, grocery store, or smart device. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. Welcome back to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Drew Laser, who recently wrote the book Session Cocktails. We've been talking about cocktails in general, but let's define what a session cocktail is. Okay. Uh, in terms of the book itself, the actual definition is a session cocktail is a drink that features no more than three-quarter ounce of a strong spirit. So your gins, your whiskeys, your vodkas, your tequilas, and mezcal. The remainder of the drink is built using uh, lower-proof liqueurs, Amaro, vermouths, fortified wines, um, which, you know, there's huge, huge depth in those categories that a lot of people might not know about. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, in terms of actual numbers, it's a three-quarter ounce max of a strong spirit, and then the rest is kind of up to the creativity of the bartender to figure out. And is this something that people... It's not teetotaling. It's not necessarily drinking in moderation because some people also want to just drink all day with session cocktail. <laughs> Correct. So who is this for? It's, it's kind of for everybody? I, I think so. I think it is for everybody. And one of the main things that I've ran into researching the book and talking to people about it is a lot of people are interested in this idea. They're interested in having mixed drinks and having cocktails that are not going to knock them on their butt after one or two, but they don't necessarily know what to ask for. They don't know how to articulate what they want at a bar. Um, and hopefully Session Cocktails, a book, can provide a bit of a vocabulary for helping people get more into it. Uh, but in addition to that, so many more bartenders these days are really exploring this category as well. And ton of awesome people who are doing a lot of really, really interesting dynamic stuff in the in the session world are featured in the book. Yeah, I'm a big Pimm's Cup person. I, I, I love, you know, that liqueur. And I thought it was really interesting that you wrote the history in England, the British defense of the Realm Act from 1914, disallowed pubs to operate other than midday and evening sessions, and they had to shut down in between. So people actually couldn't have all-day session drinks. Yes, uh, I think that uh, in my research and just talking to people and reading stuff, that's where the idea of using the actual term session when it applies to drinking actually came from. Uh, but uh, before it kind of infiltrated the world of cocktails, it's been really hugely used to great effect in the craft beer world. Some of the best-selling craft beers these days in America are quote-unquote session ales or session beers, which are you know 4.5% ABV or lower, 
And it really appeals to a lot of people because um, you see the craft in craft beer industry go one way where who can make the most extreme, strongest, hoppiest beer. That only appeals to a really small percentage of, of beer geeks and fans. Whereas if you go the opposite way and make kind of an accessible beer that's still great in flavor and is well-made and tastes good, but is not going to basically end your night after one 16-ounce uh, pour, that's a great way to get more and more people into you know, the entire craft category. And I think the same can be said for, for cocktails. Yeah, and people know these things like Pilsners or Hefeweizens and Gozas. Why don't they know Cobblers, Spritzes, Kiroyal, Sours, and Collins as much? I think a big reason for that is, uh, if whatever you really want to call it, the, the, the uh, classic cocktail revival that kind of happened around uh, the year 2000 to 2003, 2004. Uh, when that came back, it was kind of that pre-prohibition kind of speakeasy vibe where... The, the most popular drinks were the ones, uh, the most popular drinks that were being made by those bars at that time were uh, kind of historical variations on drinks we already knew about, whether it's the old fashioned, the Manhattan, the martini. And those are all, for lack of a better way of putting it, all booze. Those are, those are strong drinks. And we automatically started associating those super strong drinks with cocktail bars. Oh, like if you go to a cocktail bar, you're going to get yourself a real, real nice strong drink. Uh, well, with everything priced at, you know, whatever, the same price per every cocktail, I think people tend to, I'm going to get the most bang for my buck. Yes, and you're really touching on a huge, huge thing that uh, Session Cocktails wants to address is here in America, we've kind of been conditioned to associate the value of a drink with its strength. Uh, I can't even count the number of times when, you know, I've been out to a bar, any type of bar with friends. And they say, oh, man, this drink's so weak. I paid eight bucks for this thing. I don't, even, I don't even feel anything. I had two already. I'm like, is that really the goal? I mean, maybe when I was like in my early 20s, that was the goal. But now that I'm a little older, I want to actually extend my night and have fun, still have a drink in my hand, but not have to call it after, you know, two to three just because they're, they're way too strong. Yeah, and like the care and complexity that goes into some of these drinks, and let's start kind of railing these off, is is the Mermaid Parade from Natasha David at Nightcap. I mean, that's what I want to drink. And I would pay much more than $8 for that kind of cocktail. Yes, Natasha uh, David from, from Nightcap is a, definitely a leader in the session cocktails world. She uh, grew up in Europe, so she has so much familiarity with the concept of the aperitif, uh, which is, you know, obviously huge in France and Italy, but we don't really know about it here. Our version of that is happy hour, where you can get as many drinks as possible for as cheap as possible in a window from 5 to 7 p.m. Whereas over there, it's all about, let's have some lower alcohol drinks that kind of ease us into the night instead of uh, you know going 100 miles an hour and kind of plowing through. Uh, and yeah, the, the Mermaid Parade is a, is a fizz, I believe, it, that has the, uh, the raspberry liqueur in there from France. And yeah, it's, it's easy to drink. It, it's a beautiful looking drink. And yeah, it's, it's something that is a real great example of just because it's a session cocktail, just because it's low in alcohol does not mean it's weak, does not mean it's watered down, does not mean that it tastes like nothing or it, uh, it doesn't have the same kind of uh, creative appeal or, or flavorful appeal that other drinks do. Um, just because it's lower in alcohol does not mean that it's, uh, it's not going, just because it's uh, lower in alcohol doesn't mean that it's uh, going to not satisfy you. And that's kind of the, a huge driver for the book. 
Yeah, and they don't have to be supremely complex either. And I'll mispronounce both of these words, and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about in a second. But in Basque country in Andalusia, um, there are these two distinct cocktails, one with red wine and Coca-Cola, and then one that you have in the book, which is the southern iteration of that drink. Is that the uh, Rebujito? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. So yeah, the the Calimoxo, is that the uh, the red wine one you're referring to? Yeah, or? I just didn't know how to pronounce that TX. <laughs> gotcha. I I'm not sure I did it right either. But yeah, that's uh that's a that's a really really easy drink. So, um you mind reminding me what what exactly goes into that one? Sherry and Sprite? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, you, I like how you made me answer that because it's that simple. You cannot forget something that is a two-ingredient cocktail. Right. The Rebujito in the book is a little bit more modernized. It has, uh, it, it takes a little bit more of a contemporary uh, cocktail bar approach, but uh, I believe that one originates with the editors at Punch who, who put it in there as opposed to a, a bartender around the country. But yeah, it's just a really... Easy drink. You can make it for a crowd. Uh, that kind of goes back to the whole idea of aperitif, gathering with family and friends. You can bang out a bunch of them in a few minutes. You're, you don't, you're not going to have to buy a bunch of crazy bottles and tools and set up a really elaborate home bar in order to make it. Uh, and, yeah, I think that's a really good example of, of uh, a drink in the book that speaks to kind of the, the entry-level uh, session cocktail. It speaks to the fact that you can have wine or a fortified wine in it, because then there's a Kitty Highball, which is a red wine, ginger syrup, lime juice, and soda water cocktail, which I, I find it that fascinating that people, you know, will, will think of wine as its own separate entity, but it can be incorporated into these drinks. Absolutely. And I, yeah, that's a, that's a huge part of it, too, because I, I don't think a lot of people think about fortified wines or vermouths as wine. But that's really what they are, and with that comes the very friendly proof that they carry. So you can really do a lot with these, and there's so much, so much diversity in terms of flavor within that category that you can really play with it uh, any which way. And a ton of the historical session cocktails, which you know you, you were not really hearing a ton about until now, uh, like the Adonis or the Bamboo uh, or the Old Hickory, those those are all sherry and vermouth. Uh, based drinks, uh, just with bitters, but th they would really satisfy a, a fan of a strong and stirred drink like a Negroni or a Manhattan because they have body and they have character and they have a lot of flavor behind them, but they're not, they're just not quite as strong, but you don't really notice. There are guidelines to make session margaritas, session Manhattans, session dark and stormies, um, but then there also is a Negroni in there, but it's a white Spagliato from Tony Ciccini at Long Island Bar, and I've had it, and I love it, and I have had it all day. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I think that's the idea. Yeah, that, that's a, the Spagliato is a, a really fun cocktail to play with, especially if you are starting from a point of, I love a Negroni. What can I do that isn't quite uh, as, as uh, aggressive? And that's a, that's a great example of one. And it has, how do you say it? Suze. Suze. Oh, Suze, yeah, yes. Yeah, S-U-Z-E. Mm -hmm. And I love that just on its own. And I believe there's even a drink in there that's a Suze or Suze and Tonic. Yes. Um, and I will be doing that the second I get home. <laughs> exactly. That's a, that's a great uh, spring and summertime drink. And you can make it in 0.2 seconds. And it's pretty warm out. You know, it's spring, summery weather. And, of course, I have to mention that there is Frosé in this book. Yes. There is an entire Frozen category. Uh, I'm an extremely pro-Frozen drink person. I know that. You're pro-fro. I'm pro-fro. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I am pro-fro 
uh, in terms of cocktails. And I think that, you know, people, people have all sorts of different things to think about frozen drinks, uh, mainly because there's a lot of bars out there that just make them the alcoholic version of a Slurpee. And it's like, you know, 99% sugar and 1% booze. But these, the drinks in the frozen chapter of Session Cocktails are really satisfying. And again, they're really easy to make. It's just, you just need a blender. And that's a, you want to talk about a crowd pleaser, like around a pool or on a patio or having a backyard cookout or barbecue. Super easy to execute and real crowd pleasers, unless your friends are lame and don't like frozen <laughs> drinks, and then in which case you can kick them yeah. out of your home. Another crowd pleaser is Session Cocktails by Drew Laser and the editors of Punch. Low alcohol drinks for any occasion, Drew. Thanks so much for being on. Thank you, Michael. You've been listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.